Well, let me add my welcome this morning. My name is Alistair. I am the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. And there is so much I want to say about the passage we just read that it's going to take two sermons. And so before we dig into this passage, let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and for your mercies. And that you are rich in grace and you are rich in mercy and that your mercy and your grace is new every single morning. And so as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts so we not grow cold, and that you would apply it to our feet. We would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're picking the Gospel of Luke back up today, and as we do, I just want to remind you that the goal of the Gospel of Luke, the goal of Luke, who wrote this Gospel, is to present an orderly account and narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. By reading Luke, by following Jesus through Luke, we should be able to answer two questions. Who is Jesus, and what is Jesus all about? Luke wants us to understand the identity of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. And our passage today, it takes place right after the wilderness temptations that Jesus endured. And we looked at that through Lent, and you can go back and listen to those sermons. Uh, In Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30, we now start to get a glimpse into the self-understanding of Jesus. Who does he understand himself to be, and what is he all about? Well, we're going to see that in our passage. We're going to see the why behind Jesus. Uh, The author Simon Sinek says that uh, people and teams and organizations, they need to know their why. According to him, our why uh, is our mission and it's our purpose. It's what drives us and determines and guides what we do. Uh, For example, the show Friday Night Lights came up with a now well-known slogan, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. If you're into sports, it's a great why. On the other hand, there's the movie The Grey with Liam Neeson, and it begins and ends with Neeson reciting this poem, uh, once more into the fray, into the last good fight I know, live and die this day, live and die this day. And if you're into fighting wolves for your own survival, this is a great why. So whether it's a slogan or a poem, our why gives purpose and focus and shape to how we live and move and have our being in this world. So Luke, he takes us to Nazareth. We're in the hometown of Jesus, and we are about to discover the why of Jesus. And while there, Jesus is invited to read from Scripture, and he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the why of Jesus. The rest of Luke is going to show us how these words give purpose and focus and meaning to everything Jesus does. So from here on out, it doesn't matter where you are in the Gospel of Luke, it is an example of how Jesus is fulfilling these words or living out his why. So today, let's step into this synagogue in Nazareth, this hometown moment for Jesus, and let's press into the words he shares. I want to look at three things, the why of Jesus, the reaction to it, and how to live with it. The why of Jesus, the reaction to it, and how to live with it. 
So let's begin with the why of Jesus. Once again, Jesus is in Nazareth. He's in the synagogue. He's been invited to be the reader. And we read in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 17 through 20, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And then Luke writes, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's a pin drop moment. This quiet hush comes over the synagogue. You could probably feel your heart beating a little bit stronger because this is a loaded passage. It's full of hope. One historian describes the hope of Israel as the desire for the everlasting hills. I've always liked that. The desire for the everlasting hills. And as a nation, Israel had long been waiting for God to come and renew and restore all things to establish his everlasting kingdom of peace. But there was a big gap between what they hoped for and what they experienced in their everyday lives. As an oppressed nation, their land was currently occupied by Rome. And, and as, a, as a nation, they had a complicated history. And even so, amidst all the complications of their history, even being occupied by a Roman power, Israel longed and continued to hope for God to establish his kingdom. They longed for God to initiate a renewal that would sweep through all of the earth so that the glory of the Lord would cover the world. They set their hope on seeing the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. I was born in Victoria, British Columbia at the Royal Jubilee Hospital. I've always liked that name and I always thought it just has like the right regal fitting for my emergence into the world. But Jubilee has big Hebraic roots. Uh, the year of the Lord's favor, you heard that quoted in Isaiah, the year of the Lord's favor in the Torah is the year of Jubilee. It was supposed to occur every 50 years, and during the Jubilee, all slaves were to be freed. Debts were to be canceled. The land was to be fallowed. The property, if it was lent to someone, was to be returned to its original owner. And on top of all of that, work was to cease for the entire year. How great is that? I'll take a year of the Lord's favor. You know, sometimes when Julia and I get off on the wrong foot, one of us will declare a do-over. It's just a fresh start, no questions asked, no grudges held. Now there's limits to when you can call a do-over, but you can call a do-over and it's fantastic. And the jubilee for Israel was meant to be this great equalizer and reset button for the well-being of Israel. It was the do-over of the Lord. There are boundaries. The Lord is the one who can establish this equity, but it was a great do-over for the nation of Israel. The only problem is we have no historic evidence that the nation of Israel ever kept 
a year of the Lord's favor, this year of Jubilee. But there was hope. And this hope began to evolve over the years that this year of Jubilee, perhaps not a present reality, was a promise of a future reality. That it would not just be one year every 50 years, but a description of what the everlasting kingdom of God would be like when he finally establishes it on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is why a quiet hush came over that synagogue in Galilee, why people's hearts start beating a little faster. Their hope is stirred. What is Jesus going to say about this passage? Could he be the promised servant that will come to establish the year of the Lord's favor? Now, we can get a good sense of what this passage meant for the people hearing it, but what did it mean for Jesus? Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which means Jesus read Isaiah to say, the Spirit of the Lord, it's on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me. Jesus says these words from the prophet Isaiah, they're about me. They're about me. And as we'll see throughout Luke, Jesus embodies these words, not just because he's trying really hard to emulate them, but because God took a prophet hundreds of years before the birth of Christ and opened his mind to see the Son of God and then write it down. These words are a foretelling that describe who Jesus is. They are simply a description of him. Jesus says he's been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. And this is undoubtedly something he does, but in all of these promises about him, we have to hear the double meaning. He brings his message to the poor. God's kingdom comes to those who are down and out, to those who are economically poor and socially have no clout, to those who are deemed outsiders and marginalized. But we also see throughout Luke that the poor is no respecter of social status, that one could be spiritually poor yet rich or spiritually poor yet poor. Jesus, he proclaims recovery of sight to the blind and and he'll indeed heal the physically blind. But we also see that to Jesus, this is about helping people recover their spiritual sight into the realities of God as well. That someone could have 20-20 vision but be blind as a bat spiritually. You know, Jesus, he liberates captives and oppressed. And in Luke, this is often seen when he heals diseases or when he releases people from demonic forces But we also see that to Jesus, it's equally important to release people from the burden and debt of sin by proclaiming forgiveness of sins. So there's a double meaning to all these promises. And this is what this quotation from Isaiah means to Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he does. So here we are. We're in Nazareth. We're in the synagogue. All eyes are fixed on Jesus. What's he going to say about this passage? Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's the ultimate mic drop moment. And this brings us to our second point, the reaction. The reaction to the why of Jesus. Luke writes this in uh, verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? 
they marveled at the gracious words. They felt awe and wonder. They were astonished. They, they feel a sense that the everlasting hills have come a bit closer and that maybe they're within reach. But they also said, is this not Joseph's son? And it could be read in a couple of ways. This might reflect hometown pride or hometown cynicism. It could be, whoa, this is Joseph's son. The Messiah is one of us. We're on the inside. Or it could be, how could a hometown boy like Joseph's son be the Messiah? Back in the day, my band uh, played at a festival while on tour. And uh, a friend from Victoria happened to be at this out-of-town show and, and heard our set. And afterward, he said to our tour manager, I had to do a double take. Why do they sound so much better out here than when they play at home? Talk about the ultimate backhanded compliment. It's the challenge of the hometown crowd. Marveling and skepticism can go hand in hand. Now just try to imagine being the son of God in your hometown. Try to wrap your head around that. You can't. Jesus is in Nazareth where he'd been brought up. He's among people who knew him best as Joseph's boy. And the people marvel over what he says, but I suspect are also a little bit skeptical because they know him. And based off of Jesus' response, I think they were skeptical because we read in verses 23 through 27, Jesus said to them, Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But I, in truth, tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. This is the Guinness Book of World Records of going from marveling to murder in less than a minute. The challenge of a hometown crowd. I don't know about you, but nothing Jesus just said there made me want to murder him. But maybe this means we need to try to hear what he's saying with a different set of ears. You know, how did his audience hear it? Because clearly they didn't like it. You know, in response to their marveling and skepticism, Jesus tells two stories from two of the favorite prophets of, of Israel, Elijah and Elisha. How could he go wrong? What's so egregious about these stories that these people go from marveling to wrath? Well, to start, both stories feature scandalous places and people. You know, Elijah, the prophet, is in Sidon. This was a region outside of Israel. This is Gentile territory. This is where all the immoral, adulterer, you know, um, false God-worshipping people reside. And while there, Elijah stays with Zarephath. And God provi provides graciously for this Gentile widow during the famine. And then Jesus moves to the story of Elijah with Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. And it wasn't bad enough that he's a Gentile. He's actually a commander in the enemy's 
army. This is an enemy. And he comes to see Elijah, and Elijah heals him of leprosy. In each story, Jesus highlights that God did something gracious for Gentiles instead of Israelites. There were many widows in Israel, says Jesus, but God provided for the Gentile widow. There were many lepers in the land of Israel, he says again, but God healed Naaman, an enemy. Grace has no hometown advantage. Grace pushes boundaries. It it comes to those outside Israel, to Gentiles and even to enemies. Grace is, if you want a definition, it's often described as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. God shows sheer generosity giving us what we do not deserve. I've always quite liked uh, Paul Zoll's definition of grace. In his book, Practicing Grace, he writes, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. It's being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. So here Jesus is in his hometown. And he says, grace gives no hometown advantage. And in fact, it comes for those we deem outside of God's people. People understand what Jesus is saying. And it's because they understand what he's saying that they're driven to wrath. They don't just dislike him for it. They hate him for it because Jesus stretches their boundaries beyond their comfort. He doesn't affirm their bias or prejudice against Gentiles. He doesn't keep the status quo. God is not just the God of Israel, but of every nation. And Israel was called and set apart for the sake of the nations, not for their own sake. And so Jesus, he doesn't come into the world, and this is why they're disappointed too, to immediately establish God's kingdom in a social, political, cultural upheaval. But he starts with a spiritual renewal of grace coming to outsiders. And so the passage says they're filled with wrath and they try to throw Jesus off a cliff and mysteriously he just walks through their midst. And the scene in Nazareth, it's full of irony. It's full of irony. Jesus, he's come to proclaim good news. The good news that the desire for the everlasting hills is within reach that this this everlasting kingdom that they've longed for has drawn near in him. He has come to release people from sins through forgiveness and to liberate those who are captive and oppressed and to ultimately defeat death. But the very hope that people longed for, their hope embodied right in front of them, they chased to the edge of a cliff to have it destroyed. Jesus preaches a message of grace and is met with marveling and then violence. And if we're honest, it's a very startling reaction. But even if we don't attempt to drive Jesus to the edge of a cliff to throw him off of it, I think we should hesitate about putting too much distance between us and this audience in the synagogue of Nazareth. We can marvel and reject Jesus all the same. We can marvel and reject Jesus. We can marvel over the radical inclusion Jesus models here. The way he pursues outsider empowers the marginalized. But we might reject that grace doesn't mean then that anything goes and that our lives actually have to be conformed to his image and likeness in ways. 
We might marvel over how Jesus rebukes greed and challenges the, the rich, and yet we might reject the way he calls out our own covetousness and calls us to a life of sacrifice. We might marvel over the ethical teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor, love even your enemy, but we might reject the exclusivity of Jesus when he says he is the only way to God. Do you have a cut and paste relationship with Jesus? Do you marvel over select parts of him and you you cut those parts out and you put them into your life, but then you leave a whole bunch of other stuff out? You leave out the parts you don't like. People tend to do this with scripture as a whole. You might say, I love Jesus. I don't like the Apostle Paul. Or you might say, I love Paul but I don't like the Old Testament? Or do you start to pit parts of God against himself, that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but a God of love in the New Testament? Or you pit his judgment against his love, and you can't see how God judging the world is indeed his acts of love on display? Do you have a cut and paste relationship with Jesus? Do you marvel over some parts and reject other parts? Whenever we do this, we're ultimately rejecting the revelation of God in Christ. Because it's not for us to pick and choose who Jesus is. He's revealed himself within history and time. We have a written, accountable record. We can discover who he is, and there might be parts of him that make us downright uncomfortable, but it is not for us to determine who he is, but to surrender to who he reveals himself to be. So we need to ask ourselves, Where do we marvel over Jesus? Where do we reject him? And maybe you're still getting to know Jesus and you don't know at what points you agree or disagree with him. But as you read the Gospels, as you get to know Jesus, here's what I want to point out. You're going to have to confront something about yourself. Does Jesus determine what is true or do you? Does Jesus determine what is true or do you? This passage is a really sober reminder that it is not enough to marvel over the gracious things Jesus said. Jesus did not come into the world so we could admire him or be astonished by his teaching and impressed by his miraculous feats. Jesus defines himself. He declares who he is and what he is all about. And it might cause awe and wonder, but Jesus wants more than that. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. So the question is, can we hear his good news as the poor? It didn't sound like good news to the people in Nazareth, did it? And let's remember, these are religious people. They are good, moral, upright people. They're at synagogue, and they're there to read from, listen to, and and apply Scripture to their lives. They're there to worship God, and yet in the heat of the moment, they're driven from marveling to wrath and attempted murder. They don't like, they like the gracious words Jesus spoke, but they don't like grace. Because grace says we bring nothing to the table. One pastor describes these people in Nazareth as the uh, middle-class spirituality. Where you have this sense that you've picked yourself up by your bootstraps and you've earned what you have. 
But grace says, you bring nothing to the table. And grace extends the boundaries and invites people you think don't deserve to be there to have a seat at the table. So the people at the synagogue in Nazareth, they can't hear this message of grace as good news. But this is because grace only sounds like good news to those who know they're poor. Grace only sounds like good news to those who know they are poor. And this brings us to the last point. How do we live with the why of Jesus? Well, we can only live with it if we see that we're the recipients of this good news. That we are the poor. That it doesn't matter how religious or irreligious you are or how wealthy or poor you are or how moral or immoral you are. The good news Jesus proclaimed is for those who recognize themselves as the poor. And as we follow Jesus through, the, through Luke, we'll see that Jesus, he proclaims his good news to, you know, sex trade workers and rich tax collectors who betray their community and the sick and the diseased. He proclaims his good news to those who are economically poor and economically rich. He pro- proclaims his good news to foreigners and immigrants and those on the outside of society looking in. And he also proclaims his good news to the elites and those who have all the power religiously in that day. They are all recipients of the good news because in Christ's eyes, they are all poor. There is one common thread that unites them despite all of the visible diversity. They share in a spiritual poverty. There's a Hebrew word, anawim, that can help us understand what Jesus means by the poor. In Israel's history, the anawim were economically poor and impoverished. They had nothing. But their physical lack amplified something about their inner lives, the state of their souls. Their physical lack, the anawim, could see there was a hollow space, an emptiness, a nothingness within them. But in all that nothingness, despite how all things appeared, despite bringing nothing to the table, they still trusted in God. Jesus brings good news to the anawim, the poor, those who come to God with nothing but empty hands. The good news Jesus proclaims is for those who recognize their spiritual poverty and realize there's nothing they can do to deserve grace, but open their hands and ask for it anyway. How do we live with the why of Jesus? We don't just marvel over the gracious things he said and did. We come to him and ask to be lavished with grace. We come to him with our nothingness, our spiritual poverty, because it's the only requisite of receiving his grace. And if you want to hear some stories of how people have encountered the grace of Christ, go to stpetersfireside.org slash stories. And there people tell their stories of encountering this grace, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, whether it's how they first came to faith or where they felt a spiritual renewal. But as you read those stories, you'll see a common thread. Everyone recognizes a spiritual poverty that only Jesus can meet as he proclaims good news. And as we let him proclaim that good news to us, what do we hear? You're released from the burden of your sins because Christ has forgiven your sins and wants to liberate you out of everything that oppresses you in life. And there's so much more 
to say about what it means to live with the why of Jesus. That's why there's going to be a part two to this sermon. Because we don't just become recipients of this good news, but ambassadors of this good news. We actually get to join Jesus in proclaiming this good news to the poor and liberation to the oppressed and the captive and and the restoration of sight to the blind. We get to become an extension of his mission. How great is that? Yes, it requires another sermon. But if we want to be a part of the political and social and cultural renewal that God is bringing in this world as he establishes kingdom before the permanent jubilee comes, if we want to be a part of that, we must be spiritually renewed. We must be those who need the good news proclaimed to us before we can proclaim it to someone else. And so may you see your spiritual poverty today afresh. May you run to Christ who so graciously meets us and offers us forgiveness of sins and invites us to be a part of his why. Let's pray.